Danny. Danny, thank you so much for having me back. And it's a joy to be back. And I believe you put a spell, a good spell, uh, on the journey of Boy Swallows Universe about two years ago. And um, I've never, ever forgotten uh, how kind and generous you were to have me on early on um, when Trent Dalton and the world of uh, literary fiction were, were pretty strange to each other. And uh, I was very touched that you took the time of day and I'm, and it's so cool that you took the time of day again. I feel like I'm part of the Words and Nerds family. You guys are so amazing and lovely and such a family of amazing literary lovers and creators and people who advocate. Oh, thanks so much for your questions engaging with the novel and for everything you're doing. I know the podcast is hugely, hugely loved, so um, you're a gem. I think it's awesome the work that you do you know, we're out there in this pool of, of like how many writers there are in this country and we're all trying to get our book to the surface. Podcasts like this enable us to do that and also to talk about our craft. Danny, you're a gift from heaven. I love that you're such a great supporter and advocate for not only kids' books but adult novels too. I love your interviews across the board. Kudos to you, Danny, for, uh, for getting everyone to relax so much that they open up and tell you such interesting things for the benefit of your listeners. So, well <laughs> Thanks, Jack. Yeah, well done. That's so true. Oh my gosh, I just told you all these things that I've never talked about before. I could never edit that bit out. I could do this. And I was just so comfortable that I was like, I'm all this stuff. It's a special knack. Who wouldn't want to celebrate this fabulous podcast? Thank you for listening to the Words and Nerds podcast. On this podcast, we chat about books, the writing process, and how literature has the power to change the world. I'm your host, Danny V. Today, I'm so grateful to be speaking to Australian writing royalty, Jackie French, an award-winning writer, wombat negotiator, and regarded as one of Australia's most popular authors who writes across all genres, from picture books, history, fantasy, sci-fi, historical fiction. And Jackie, you joined me very early on in the podcast in episode 10, and now I'm nearly at uh, 300. So welcome back and so grateful to have you back. Absolute pleasure. We also have a special guest with us tonight, a Jackie French super fan who won the chance to join our chat and ask you some questions of their own. So welcome, Angela. Oh, thank you for having me. This is very exciting. It is very exciting. Can you give us an elevator pitch just about a bit about who you are, Angela? Uh, so I am a mum. I am a very passionate reader, always have been from childhood, and I'm also an educator. So I am a primary school teacher who uh, thinks I have the best job in the world. <laughs> I think you might be right. You have a question for Jackie. How do you think we might be able to get more books to families who can't or don't prioritise reading or have barriers to reading and they're yet to discover the joy that sharing a story together can bring them? I don't think there's a single answer to that because there are many reasons why families don't read. With surveys over 50, um, don't feel confident enough to read a book to their grandkids. Um, so what I often do is give workshops showing people how, in fact, it doesn't matter if you don't get the picture book right, because after all, little kids can't read. Um, there's one grandpa I know who actually can't read very much. He reads Diary of a Wombat to his grandkids, and there's a page there where the wombat destroys all sorts of things, and he can't, he can't read it. 
but every time he reads it, he makes up new things that the wombat's destroying. And for the kids, that's the favorite page because they never know what Pa's going to say next on that page. <laughs> so um, first of all, it's actually encouraging parents who don't feel confident with reading themselves. And there is a heck of a lot of them um, to read to young kids. And the next one is getting um, actually just occasions in the public library, um, introducing parents, not necessarily to books, um, but to things like cooking guides and magazines and all the other things they can find in the library and having family days in the public library. Um, where particularly dads are encouraged to get a magazine and, and things like that. Um, so there's, there's mentoring, there's modelling in the family, and it's a family activity. Try to encourage families to go to the library um, once, um, once a fortnight. But also tell them about the 70 books in the household rule, that if you want your child to be successful, um, by various criteria, one of which is not ending up in prison. Um, there's this really strange rule of 70 books in a home. 70 books in a home is enough to make it um, a book-friendly household. So how many houses have got 70, 70 books that people can read? And if they don't, how can they get them? So we'll get book swaps, get, get book donations from people, um, just bringing in books so that households in the school who don't have 70 books can actually get to that magic number of, of the 70 book, have a 70 book club to make sure that everyone has got 70 books. But I can't recommend having parties in the library enough. <laughs> um, basically where there is actually cask wine and there is beer and there is fizzy water and there's delicious things to eat and um, people talk about their favourite books and you get the most unexpected people. Look, get, get a sports star, um, whoever you think is the local celebrities um, that the families will identify with and get two or three of those to actually just give a talk. I mean, we're talking a five-minute talk, not a great big long talk just a five-minute talk on what their favourite books are, what they like. And, okay, um, it's probably going to be about the sex life of cricketers. Um, <laughs> but to be, to be perfectly honest, that's, that's one thing we need to actually get through to actually kids and parents, that the books they read at school are to show them the incredible variety and the richness of books and literature. But um, the books they may very well enjoy most or read most of when they leave school it's going to probably be, be about the sex life of our cricketers <laughs> or, or, the, or, or the equivalent. Yeah. So, yeah, family, family, family parties at the library. Oh, well, I love the sound of those parties. I will definitely be at any party where there's cake, fizzy water and books, so sign me up. And um, it's really interesting, Jackie, what you said about 70 books, and I wonder how many families in the country have 70 books in their houses, and it's an interesting question. Um, I have no idea. I haven't seen any survey at all mm. about how many have got 70 books. But the researchers found this really extraordinary correlation that it actually was almost a magic number. Wow. 70 books um, is is a reading household. I think that probably means that houses that have got 70 books, though, probably have got a lot more than 70 books. Mm. And those who don't have 70 probably have, have a lot fewer. But yeah. they still came up with that number of, of 70. That is very interesting. Now, Angela, you're going to sneak in another question, aren't you? 
I am, if I may. I'm a bit cheeky. <laughs> Your words have inspired many of uh, my um, students and we've enjoyed your literature together and it's inspired them as writers. And I would love to know what advice you'd give your younger self, your younger writing self. I was gigging before because it's a very teacher thing, but this is this is a two-pronged question. It's not really two <laughs> questions. It's, it's a two-pronged question. Um, what I was very lucky when I was young. I think the it wouldn't be advice I'd give my younger self. I think it would be reassurance. Um, I was only, the only people who actually really encouraged me to be a writer were my teachers. Um, my mother disliked my writing. My father um, really thought that it was just a, an absolutely stupid idea. I mean, he, he venerated writers, but the thought that his daughter might become a writer was just absolutely impossible to him. Um, it wasn't until, I think he was about 60, and... On a visit down here, I was on a, a platform speaking with the poet Judith Wright um, about our works. And he came up absolutely stunned afterwards and apologised and he said, look, I, I didn't realise you really you really are a writer, aren't you? And I said, yes, I, I have been for about 20 years. Then. <laughs> um, and and after, look, after that, he was just absolutely as proud as punch. Every He had to have a blood test every two days in the last so five or six years of his life. And he'd always be taking my latest book or book review <laughs> or um, something like that to the nurses. And um, about six months before he died, um, I got a dinner napkin signed to him from Thomas Keneally, who was one of his favourite authors. And... Um, it was his most precious possession. He just went everywhere with this, tucked in his pocket, look, look what my daughter's got for me. Yes, help it's like a Barry from um he was he was absolutely thrilled. I think I would just say, um, look, it is it's going to turn out all right. It is actually going to happen. You will be a writer. Um, it's going to take longer than you think. Um, but don't don't give up. Don't worry about the years when you do have to write in secret and keep it hidden. Um, just keep on writing. I don't think that advice would have changed anything because I, I, look, I write when I'm happy. I write when I'm sad. I write as an escape. I write to rejoice. I write for readers. I write, I write for all sorts of things. My almost automatic reaction to most things is either to, to cook, um, clean out the larder or, or write something no matter what disaster there is. But um, so, no, I don't think it would have changed anything, but just simply that reassurance. Mm -hmm. To a kid who wanted to be a writer, though, I would advise them that no one reads a book for the beautiful writing. Um, they read it because it's a fascinating idea, um, fascinating data, um, fantastic, fascinating insights. Um, you need something to write about. So quite accidentally in pushing me into doing other things and getting a much wider experience, um, I was actually probably very lucky. Looking back at those years of my life, working in the Anthropology Museum, cooking in kitchens, um, cleaning in pubs, um, working in the meat factory, and um, we had an alarm whenever the health inspector came down the lane and everything was shoved away. Um, all of those adventures, um, milking of kidneys, etc. all of those have gone into my books. 
and I wouldn't be able to write them if I hadn't had that experience. So, yes, write every day. Um, don't necessarily keep a diary, just write. Um, write whatever you feel like, write scenes, write characters, um, try to vary your writing. Kids ask what, where the inspiration comes. There's never one inspiration. Um, you need at least 10 million really interesting ideas um, for a book, and it takes a while to collect those. So, yes, um, live the fullest possible life um, that you can. Oh, wow. I just went through a gamut of emotions in that answer. Thank you, Jackie. <laughs> it was amazing. It was amazing. <laughs> I really like um, how, you know, the belief in yourself that it will happen and you'll be a writer. I think that's very consoling for aspiring writers who, you know, have these terrible moments of self-doubt. And I really like the, the live the richest life you can because it takes 10 million experiences to write one book. And you write so many books, Jackie, so your life must be very rich. <laughs> um, well, having... Having just had um, four days of flood, uh, this is our fifth flood in nine months, three months of bushfire, um, pandemic, surgery, um, quite a lot of other dramas in the valley around. Um, I think I could really do with some boredom. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it does feel like that way, doesn't it? Sometimes you just wish things would be ordinary. <laughs> Very much so, Yes. <laughs> Well, thank you, Angela. Your questions were just amazing and Jackie's answers to them, obviously, so much in them. And I'm, I'm looking forward to listening back because I think it's not just writing advice. I actually think there's life in life advice in there, Jackie. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I think that, but that is the essence of what a book is. Mm. Um, a book takes life and cuts out all the boring bits. There's no mm. cutting of the toenails. Um, there's no repetition, et cetera, et cetera. It's all of the most fascinating bits of life. It's all of the wisdom distilled. It's all of the humour concentrated into a point. Um, so, yes, you need to have it so you can then distill it um, from about three barrels full into, into a, tiny, a tiny little cupful. I love that. Three barrels into a cup. They're your 10 million experiences. Now, Andrew, is there anything you would like to say to Jackie before you go? And I'd like to thank you once again so much for coming along. And I'm so glad you got to ask Jackie your questions. Well, thank you for having me, Denny. And um, yeah, I would just like to say thank you, Jackie, for all the joy that you brought myself, my students, my family. So I have a 14-year-old son and my husband and my son and I have only recently moved to a more remote area of Queensland. So we're spending a lot of time on the road and we've been listening to um, the Matilda Saga, uh, that series as an audio book as a family. And it is taking us through Australia, through Australian oh, history lovely. together as a family. And I just wanted to say thank you very much for that. Oh, well, thank you for that, image. Thank you. I'll imagine you as a family ro rolling along through um, listening to Matilda. Thank oh, you. wonderful. <laughs> thank you very much, Jenny. Thank you, Anne. See you later. Bye. Thank you so much for that. They were just incredible answers. Now, I have these beautiful books in my hand, three. I know you've got more coming out, but I've, I've got these three in my hand, which I loved. Um, Night Ride Into Danger. The Vanishing at the Very Small Castle and Legends of Lost Lilies. So three books coming out very soon. Let's talk about Night Ride into Danger first. Do you want to give us an elevator pitch as to what this beautiful book is about? Um, it started off being called The Boy from Covent Cove. 
And that's what it's about. It's about a young boy whose mother has died, um, who travels with his father, who is one of the Jews, the um, the whips, one of the extraordinary American common co-drivers who can drive um, through floods, a narrow track through the darkness, taking the night mail from Braidwood to Goulburn. And it's based on a real journey in, 19, in 1874, taking the night mail. And which was, I mean, just extraordinary skill um, to be able to do um, seven horses um, and be able to meet the, the train. Um, his father is injured in an accident. There are seven passengers. The main point of it, of course, is to take the mail. So there's only seven passengers. Um, and there are seven secrets. And one of those secrets is Deadwood. And... Every one of those secrets is, in fact, a real secret of passengers back there. Um, Australia was a lot more diverse and a lot more mysterious um, than our history books actually give credit to. But there are several nationalities on that coach that night, even though um, only one of them appears to be not English. And as I said, one of the secrets is, is deadly. Um, one of the greatest secrets involves a treasure. And that, in fact, is a real treasure. And even though a solution to the treasure is given in, into the book, in fact, we don't actually know what happened to that. It's one of Australia's biggest treasures. Um, still officially not discovered. But the method I put in there about how it was hidden um, is, in fact, a real, a real method. Um, when a friend who shall be tactfully nameless was <laughs> doing up an old cottage, um, tactfully not giving you any ideas where it was or how many years ago. Anyway, he was taking down an old dividing wall and suddenly there were these um, gold pieces and <gasps> 21 antique gold watches oh my dating goodness. from the 1860s. Um, when you think about, about treasure, you think, of course, you bury treasure. But look, it's obvious. There, there's Someone's been digging here and it takes you hours in the dirt to, to dig the hole. It's so much easier to actually just um, take away the plaster in a wall. Because remember, a lot of walls then were just the wooden struts mm -hmm. and then you glued over newspaper or cardboard and you put wallpaper or plaster over it. So in one night, you could hide an entire treasure in a wall and then when you wanted it again, all you had to do was spend 20 minutes in the room with a penknife. And you could get it. No um, shoveling um, great wheelbarrows full of dirt um, by the light of the moon. All you needed was 20 minutes and a sack to take it away in. <laughs> um, so I wouldn't be at all surprised if that was how the treasure was hidden. Wow. And if people think they may possibly want to book for the treasure, um, officially it hasn't been found yet. Wow. That is a great ending to that story Jackie <laughs> the treasure is still out there <laughs> and I just I, I don't think I've ever read a book like this well I haven't read a book like this it was just so original and unique and beautiful a beautiful coming of age story of course but the characters and I know some of them were based on real life as um, Frank Gardner the real life bush ranger but the characters were just so vivid and so beautiful can you tell us about a little bit about their development and where they came from 
Um, they're all real people, basically. Um, Frank Gardner in the book is, is, is Frank Gardner and it was his treasure. And by the way, um, the places where the coach stops are the real places. Wow. Um, where I think Frank Gardner probably went um, in those few days. He was released from prison on the condition that he took a ship immediately from Australia. But there were there was about 48 hours. Um, so this is about that real short period in his life when I'm pretty sure he went back at least to get part of the treasure. And the places where the coach stopped, um, where if I was treasure hunting now, I would be looking at some of the old walls of those places because the ruins are still there for for all of them. And, in fact, one, um, two of them um, exist still as the original building. So um, might be an idea to tell the owner first before you decide to start <laughs> carving up the walls. Um, so, look, Frank, Frank Gardner is one of it. Um, the um, pa, Pa's wife, my great-great-grandmother, was Native American. Um, and, again, um, we... We were just so much more diverse than um, the history books credit mm -hmm. because people took English names, um, because they often spoke with English accents, etc. Um, it's amazing the number of people in history books that when you actually get a photograph and you look at their features, you suddenly realise, hey, wait a moment. Um, those, 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 that looks like from, from Singapore or Malaysia um, or Burma or etc. etc. Um but everyone very, very politely didn't, didn't mention it. Um, some of my friends at school who claimed they were Indian, as in from the subcontinent of India, were Indigenous because in Australia back then you couldn't get a job if you said you're Indigenous. But if you said you're Indian, you were fine. Um, and it's also the same with the Spanish dancer. Mm -hmm. um, it wasn't with the dancers, but with the circus one. I was reading a wonderful old book, um, one of those secondhand finds about a circus um, written in 1890. Wow. And they would go to um, orphanages up in Queensland and adopt Indigenous kids because if you're on the trapeze or the high wire, you can't very well do it when you're pregnant. So the circuit families wouldn't have kids. They would adopt Indigenous kids, but they were a Spanish family. So you had all of these generations of Indigenous kids, um, an Indigenous family not related to each other, getting more kids every, every few years that they would adopt, but they were Spanish. Long black hair and, and put on a nice flamenco dress and a, and a red silk shirt and lots of sequins, etc. And people would accept that you were Spanish. And if I'd never read that book, it never would have occurred to me that with the flamenco dancing, um, the whips, the, the silk, what have you, the castanets, they weren't Spanish. Wow. It was a way of being totally accepted, even though you were Indigenous. Um, the Chinese passenger. Well, the book is actually dedicated to um, Eddie Nomchong, who is one of the descendants of the Braidwood Nomchong family. And in fact, this book wouldn't have been written without Eddie because my Wi-Fi went down um, and I couldn't get a new router for three weeks. And so Eddie lent me a router. 
<laughs> so without the help of the Long Chongs yet again, um, they helped me build my house to begin with. And then they helped me write this book by Eddie Vendimirata. He runs the electrical shop in, in town. Um, and so, of course, the Chinese passenger would have been coming from Braidwood um, because back then it was illegal for Chinese to land in most of Australia. Um, that person, I'm carefully not giving details about that person, um, would have walked. And then Robin Co. had the reputation of taking anyone, um, anyone who could pay the money. They were very, very unusual in doing that. So unlike most transportation systems, Cobb & Co. would have taken a Chinese passenger and the Nom Chong family, of course, would have been an extraordinary refuge for someone travelling from South Australia to Sydney. That is just such a fascinating story, all of that. And I love how um, I love how there was such diversity, but you're right, we never read about that. So, you know, and that that's absolutely what I was interested in because I, I knew the context of this book and there was so much diversity in it. And, of course, they tried to hide it, but, you know, all, all is revealed. But it was such a beautiful book. I read it um, in the car, actually. I made um, <laughs> someone else drive and I read it in the way and on the way back and I didn't put it down until I was finished. So I felt like I was in, it was interesting because they're in trans transit the whole time and I read it while I was in transit so it was interesting <laughs> switching genres completely the lilies the miss lily series I just the first lily book I was just absolutely in love with the first lily book so I'm really looking forward to finishing this but I really like about these stories how they're stories about women that men didn't see and the stories of these women who have been left out of history and they're so important to bring to the forefront can you tell us about that Jackie the Miss Lily series begins in 1900. It ends basically in 1946 with an epilogue in 1976. And it's how a generation of women changed from basically arranging flowers and um, being my wife, my daughter, or poor Marianne, um, wives, daughters, or, or maids, um, to not independence, um, not equality. We have certainly not reached that point. but getting on the path where we are now towards it, realising actually who we are as women and who we can be as women. And so this is about the years when it changed, looking at a whole range of different women um, and also to Miss Gilly herself, who has made a very close study of what it is to be a woman. And in the beginning, Miss Gilly's lovely ladies. Miss Gilly is running a school for young ladies. If the only way you can have power as a woman is through your husband, um, through a lover, through a salon, she will teach you how to do it properly. Um, it is a very slightly, well, could be extremely scandalous school um, for young women um, from wealthy, connected royal families across Europe. Um, to show them how to actually wield power and influence behind the throne. And then you have World War I. Um, my first experience of that, of the unknown women of World War I, was a letter from a 16-year-old girl who had left school with four friends to open a canteen for soldiers near the, near the battlefront. Dear Mummy, I hope you are well. Last night we served 10,000 men. We gave each of them a bully beef sandwich, a pannikin of cocoa and two cigarettes now. 
but I had better go because we are rather busy. Give my love to Grandma, your loving daughter, Marjorie. And she was only 16. The more I studied, the more I realised that nearly every hospital was under the feeding of the men, was unofficial, and by women volunteers. You read the diaries. It's not that the official histories are incorrect. It's that they only tell a tiny part of the truth. They only tell the official truth. Mm -hmm. And officially, actually very little happened with women. But there were probably more women on those battlefronts and in those war zones than they were men because they were the support staff. If you look at the medical records of the wounded men, very few of them ever go to official hospitals. They go to houses either in France or England, um, Scotland, um, just about every house that actually had a spare, spare room was turned into a hospital or a convalescent home um, or boarding convalescent soldiers. Um, it was extraordinary. One of my favourite stories, um, two English girls who got the village's only vehicle, which was the butcher's van, but they thought it would be discouraging for the wounded to be picked up in a van that said Johnson's Fine Meats. So they just painted it white, they put a red cross on it, they paid for it to um, be transported over to France, and they spent the entire war just going to wherever the firing was the heaviest, um, picking up men, they had to kit it out so that there were shelves just wide enough to actually fit men in, so they could pack about 15 men into their, into their van. Then they would drive off to the nearest aid station, then they would go back to the firing and pick up more wounded and take them back, and they did that for the entire war. Wow. And one reminiscent I read from a woman, she said, we can always tell each other by the hand. She said, we're always touching infected wounds, we always had to wash our hands, our hands were always infected. So there was scar tissue. And by the end of the war, they're red and they're scarred and we don't have much sensation. She said, I'll be at a tea party and someone will drop a teacup. And I'll go up and say, um, were you there? And she'll take off a glove and show me her hand and say, yes, were you? Or I'll be on a bus and she'll drop sixpence. And I'll say, were you there? And she'll say, yes, were you there too? She said, we always know each other. So the series goes right through. Um, Sophie standing for Parliament, the abdication um, of Edward VIII, which in fact um, did not happen. That was a complete and utter fabrication of the time. Wow. And there's so much, I mean, known now, I have no idea why people keep doc making documentaries. He didn't write that speech to be with the woman I love. He wrote a speech calling on the English people to actually rise up and rebel in the streets to put him back as king because he'd accidentally signed the abdication papers. He was tricked into doing it. Um, but he was um, convinced by Baldwin, who um, actually wrote the speech for him, um, not to give that, but he'd actually looked like a right twit, um, admitting that he'd accidentally abdicated. Um, and instead, Baldwin gave him this speech. It was the love story that never happened. But once they were in it, they couldn't back down from it. Mm -hmm. But this one, I've always been working towards this one. This is the fifth book. And we hear lots of stories of the women SOE, um, the special operations, Baghdad um, Sabo, etc., who were parachuted into France to work with the French intelligence. I think one of the reasons we know those stories is that SOE was wound up so there were no security implications. 
But the women who were sent as spies, as agents of influence, we don't hear very much about. I think possibly because they were all continued with the Cold War. Um, war did not really end in Europe. It just took a different form after World War II. Um, so this is about this. This is about the women you don't see, whether it's Ethel, um, the women who ran the government departments, because the head of the department was usually called something like Chummy, um, who spent most of his day actually having extremely long lunch and drinks um, with his mates at the club and would turn, turn up drunk. And it was their secretaries. The head of MI5, in fact, admitted that his secretary was the one who made the decisions wow. and had her there for all major meetings were in fact conducted by her. He admitted she actually was the real boss of it. He was, he was an extremely able, intelligent man, and he actually admitted the role of the women in his organisation. Now, I have to say, the women who work with Alan Turing um, have not yet got credit um, for the work they did on the Enigma machine, but I haven't written about that, and that's a completely different, different story. Mm. Um, so I've always been leading up to the legends of the Boscovies, right from the beginning when I wrote about Dolphy, the Nazi German who loves his country and is a complex man, um, Sophie, Miskevi, Nigel, um, Ethel, who I absolutely, totally adore, um, he, he, the, the psychopath Violetta, I have always known um, what's going to happen to them in the end. For me, it's always been inevitable. Um, it was Mary Stewart, I think, who said, um, in my end is my beginning. Um, from the beginnings um, of each character, their, their ending um, has been inevitable. And I was quite peculiar doing, doing this book because often, often with a book, things change as you write. But with this one, I've known, um, I've known for a decade. Wow. Um, I really started with this book and then worked backwards. Okay, where is this story going to start? And so this was, this was a book that's really been waiting for 10 years. I love that, Jackie, and I love because this series, is, it just it really resonated with me and I really loved it. So I love how you've worked backwards from that. I think that's really interesting. And when you're talking about um, the women who found each other because of their hands, that is a story that just makes you cold, doesn't it? Like it sends shivers down your spine. That's how I was feeling when you were telling that story. It's that beautiful um, you know, knowledge of knowing that that person has been through similar life experiences to you. That's a really special story. There were, there were hundreds of thousands of them. Um, who, who were there. And um, given that really a generation of men had been killed um, and maimed, there were also so many um, who never had a chance to marry. Um, and they had very, usually, they actually had very fulfilled lives. They went and did interesting things. And it's that period when you actually do start getting women doctors, women entering professions, um, women campaigning to get proper degrees for women, opening schools for girls, etc. My mother went to one of those schools opened by a pair of sisters who'd been in World War One and wanted a school for girls where they would learn properly. Um, anything they wanted to know. It was a brilliant, wonderful school. I think they only had something like 20 or 30 pupils and just the two, um, the two sisters, though they get tutors in. Um, unfortunately, um, the school was near um, 
near the beach in Sydney. So um, they had to close the school um, with the threat of Japanese invasion. Mm. So my mother had to go to another school, um, mid, mid high school. But she, she remembered all of those anecdotes of those two wonderful women who would teach you anything. Wow. There was no such thing as ladies that ladies didn't know. <laughs> they 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 were quite sure their 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 ladies would, and when you look at the history um, of the founders of quite a few of the girls' schools in Australia, or the first headmistresses, and you look at their background, a surprising number have got World War One in their background as well. Um, when World War One was their university and their finishing school, and by the time they had been through that, they were indomitable. <laughs> <laughs> and I love how you can just pick out so much of that rich history in those books. I think it's incredible that every time I read them, you just learn something. And I'm sure you, through your research as well, learned, you know, things that you never thought could have happened. And I think that's why I love your historical fiction so much. Now, just before we end, um, there were so many questions from fans, Jackie, because everyone wanted to speak to you. So <laughs> Lu Louise, another person, she had a great question. She said that she thinks that everyone should be able to find themselves in a book. And I, I totally agree wholeheartedly agree with that is there a book that you've either read or written that reflects your life or you found yourself in that book um I don't think I could write a book where I wasn't present in the book um I do write non-fiction and even the odd biographical essay or one one book about a year in the valley but um Fiction is actually a lot more revealing about the writer than non-fiction mm -hmm. because you don't really realise how much of yourself you're giving away until someone spots it. <laughs> I love that answer. I think we're all going to read your books a little bit differently now, Jackie. <laughs> <laughs> a last question I love to ask all my guests, Jackie, and it's been such a delight to speak to you. So many, so much richness have come, has come out of this conversation. I can't wait to listen to it again. Jackie, why do you write? I have absolutely no idea. Um, <laughs> I think, in fact, there's probably no one answer. Um, I write um, I write for almost any reason. Um, when I had major surgery, um, pain relief actually doesn't work work for me. Um, it, I said it simply has no effect or else it kills me. Wow. Um, but, oh, yes, that, that, that's a, 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 an unfortunate side effect. So it meant that I'd go through major surgery, but there's no pain relief afterwards. Oh. And at 2 o'clock in the morning, I'm just unable to even talk or read or watch. I just lay there and I made up um, a series, um, The Sacred Gamingtons of Sister Bridget. Um, now, I don't think that's publishable yet. I don't think the world <laughs> is quite ready but it's very very funny and I still hope maybe in 10 or 20 years um maybe I actually can write it and that really kept me sane for about 24 hours just yet another episode of the Lamingtons of, of of Sister Bridget and I, I I had so much fun with that um so look I certainly write for escape I write if I'm passionate about something I write where I've seen that what we believe about something in the past is totally incorrect. We've we've accepted this wonderful cliche, um, but once we actually find out the truth, it tells us so much more about the way the world really is and what we can do about it. Um, looking at the way um, the abdication, for example, was was manipulated and covered up and covered up for decades. 
um, there are many, many parallels with, with the world today. Um, so it's that. And even things like in Night Ride to Danger, um, showing the diversity that has always been in our history. Um, it just hasn't been mentioned. It was just politely ignored. But read the letters, look at the photographs, even look at some of the statues, mm. um, and you suddenly realise um, who, who, in fact, we really are as Australians. Absolutely fascinating. And what a great answer. And I'm ready for that Lamington series, Jackie. I'm ready whenever you are to write it. I'm ready to read it. I think I think I probably should actually pitch it to HarperCollins. So maybe <laughs> maybe um, <laughs> sounds- I got I was I got very, I got very, very attached to Sister Bridget and, <laughs> and Sister Rosemary Burnett. <laughs> well, listen, I'm really looking forward to if we if we if this ever comes out having a special Lamington episode while we're eating lamingtons while we're talking about it (laughs) we'll have one of those library parties with the fizzy water and the lamington sounds amazing (laughs) look thank you so much jackie i knew it was going to be such a delight to speak to you again your work brings so much joy into everyone's homes and to so many people and i love your new books as always i always pick up a book that you've written and know I'm going to love it. You know, I always have such confidence that this is going to bring me joy and they did. So thank you so much for taking the time again, Jackie. No, absolute pleasure. Thank you so much.